Welcome to another episode of the Fatal Conceits podcast, a show about money, markets, mobs, and manias. I'm your host, Joel Bowman, bringing you today's episode from down here in Buenos Aires in Argentina. Before we get into today's show, a quick reminder to longtime listeners and newcomers alike, if you like what you hear during these conversations, don't forget to head over to our Substack page, which is at bonnerprivateresearch.substack.com. There you can find hundreds of irreverent articles on everything from high finance to lowly politics and plenty more besides. You'll also see special reports, webinars with Bill's private network of analysts and writers from around the world, and of course, plenty more Fatal Conceits podcasts just like this one. On that note, I'm joined by a longtime friend and also a dear friend of the Bonner Private Research family today, Mr. Eric Fry. Thanks for joining us. Hello, Joel. Welcome to be here. Yeah. Uh, whereabouts are you, by the way? I know you're in California, but you kind of uh, dash up and down am, the coast uh, there. Well, I'm at the, uh, near the Russian River. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, the the other Russian River, yeah. Uh, new meaning. No, with, without yeah, uh, it the Russian Russian River, uh, so named because it was uh, founded in a way um, either by Russians, Russian fur traders, back in the late 1700s. They, oh, I didn't. I they didn't came know that. as far south as this area from Alaska to to um, hunt sea otters. Oh, okay. And this, I'm imagining, is what a, a hundred years or more before it became uh, better known for its uh, delicious grape varietals that now populate the hillsides. Yes, yes. Although, interestingly, uh, in the local graveyard here, uh, there are a number of Greek Orthodox, pardon me, Russian Orthodox um, graves, and uh, you know they date back over over hundred years. So there's still a, a small Russian influence here. Uh, Fort Ross is close by, and um, at this outbreak of the Ukrainian invasion, one particular Russian lawmaker uh, demanded that we return Fort Ross to the Russians, which I thought was interesting. Fort Ross is not really a fort; it's just a little little place on the on the on the, <laughs> on the Pacific. <laughs> well, I, I guess uh, in a pinch, in a pinch, you need in a pinch, you need all the all the forts and uh, front lines you well, can you can get. Maybe <laughs> the only thing Fort Ross has now is like access to uh, to abalone beds. That's about it. Oh, okay. Well, I, I was going to. Uh, I hope I'm not betraying any. Uh, confidence here, but I did want to let our uh, our dear listeners know that on a private conversation you and I had a couple of weeks ago when we were maybe teeing this up, I don't know if you remember this, but I put three questions to you. One was, uh, do you listen to podcasts? Uh, the <laughs> second was, do you have any interest whatsoever in the world of ever being on a podcast? And then the third was, would you like pretty please to appear on <laughs> the Fatal Conceits podcast? To which you promptly replied, "No, no, and yes." So just to uh, just to underscore <laughs> my gratitude. No, no, and okay, if I have to. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, well, Eric, but, but go ahead. Just generation. My wife is an avid uh, podcast aficionado, so uh, she'll listen. Oh, okay. So, and, well, and, uh, that that'll be. She will hear it. That'll be one of one of the three of us will listen to it then. So that, that that's good. <laughs> uh, 
So uh, just for readers and I guess listeners now who I think would, would many of whom would be familiar with your work over the years, particularly the last couple of decades, um, do you want to just maybe just kind of set the scene a little bit, a bit of a Fry origin story, uh, how, first of all, you came to the investment world uh, up in Wall Street, and then in particular, how you got to know Bill and to come and work uh, on the Daily sure, Reckoning sure. and uh, all that? We'll make this very brief because, as you well know, my, my least favorite topic is me. So um, we'll, we're going to rip through this. Uh, went to UCLA, worked in restaurants for a long time, managed the Hard Rock Cafe in West Hollywood for a while. Um, eventually uh, self-published financial newsletter and um, that little seed germinated and um, and became a, a much larger venture uh, morphed into follow-on financial research and institutional research I, I lived I moved to New York produced institutional research there and um, that is I work with the individual named Jim Grant, who's um, I, I absolutely idolized, a brilliant financial mind writer, um, and um, Bill Bonner was and is a reader of uh, Jim Grant's, and um, Bill discovered me, as it were, uh, <laughs> uh, toiling with Grant's, and so um, he he and I began he hired me, began collaborating on on what was in the Daily Reckoning, and. Um, and you know, have been producing some form of institutional or uh, individual investment research uh, ever since, including now. Right. So uh, I'm just thinking back to those uh, those halcyon days at the beginning of uh, of the, the turn of the millennium, and uh, I, I think it was it was a few years, maybe 2003, 2004, when you came over to work with Bill. Is that some? Is that about right? Two thousand one. Okay. Oh, okay. So this is. So I wanted to get into this because it was just after uh, Bill had released his then novel idea of this kind of trade of the decade, uh, which of yeah, course you will recall, and I, I think many of our readers will recall too. Um, if, if for nothing else, that it was it was a very contrarian play at the time. The the trade, a simple pair trade, of course, was buy gold, uh, sell U.S. equities. Gold had been in an infamous. Just a pod, pardon the traffic outside my office yeah, window yeah. here. This is a little, a little uh, South American capital ambience, uh, ambient sound for us for our listeners. But uh, gold had been in a in a bear market for a couple of decades. Stocks were high flying, and uh, you know with, uh, nothing but blue sky ahead of them. You, part of your role over that first decade, and you and I wrote together for for a good portion of that uh, was both tracking that, analyzing that, and also explaining a lot of the underlying philosophy behind that to our readers, both at The Daily Reckoning and The Root Awakening. Uh, I'm wondering if the idea of a contrarian mindset for you as an investor, I won't ask about as an individual, but as an investor is a uh, a kind of comfortable place for you to hang out sort of intellectually, or if it's something that you have to cultivate actively and consciously. No, it's quite comfortable, but I, I, I'll go back first to the trade of the decade from 2001. Um, so it became, it became um, you know, sort of my trade of the decade by proxy since Bill had already introduced it when, before I started working with him. But uh, it was a theme that I had already been pursuing and, and highlighting uh, since 
98, 99, 2000, when, when I was producing, uh, you know, the previous institutional research. And um, I had many recommendations from that era that were, that were gold focused and then more broadly commodity focused that, um, you know, produced some pretty brilliant results during a, a fairly uh, dead decade. I mean, it was, it was kind of, a, it was literally a lost decade for stocks. This the SP 500 produced a, a total return of zero during the 2000s, early 2000s, the first decade of the 2000s. Whereas, you know, gold itself went up about 400% and many, many gold and, and uh, commodity related stocks produced thousand percent plus returns. So, um, you know, that those investment ideas came out of a, a contrarian perspective per se. I don't really like the word contrarian because it's kind of a loaded uh, a loaded word. I mean, a contrarian is sort of like it, it feels synonymous with like a curmudgeon, you know, like hates the world and and uh, and uh, and hates whatever is working. It's sort of like a you know you're an Aussie and you're younger than I am, but so you probably aren't as familiar with the Adams Family, but the TV series sitcom from the '60s. But um, Morticia Adams the, the, used to wander around the house cutting the heads off of, of roses. That was how she you know kept the house in proper form. So uh, a contrarian, you know, feels kind of like that to a lot of people. Um, so I'm not that kind of contrarian. Uh, it's rather uh, really looking for opportunities um, that provide the best risk reward, you know, setup. And a lot of times, so where you have, you know, we call them asymmetrical trades or imbalanced trades, situations where, where um, the upside is significant, downside probably pretty limited. So oftentimes you're going to find those kind of trades in areas where most people aren't looking or, or most people don't want to look. Um, and if you go back to the, the, to the era when I joined Bill, um, we were, <clears throat> that was the very first, you know, infamous uh, tech stock boom. It, it had just busted uh, the, the dot-com era of the late 2000s. But, but the tech stock mindset was still all the rage. Everybody wanted to buy these beaten down tech stocks, but they just kept getting hammered and hammered and hammered even more where the, the, the real trade you wanted to be in was not that, not then. You wanted to be in, you know, other sectors, not just commodities, but some of the, there were a variety of insurance plays you could have made. Um, there, there were different sectors of the economy that, that you know, produced some great stocks. So, um, you know, coming fast forward to the present, um, you know, I, I guess, I about four years ago was making some a number of recommendations in the renewable energy, in particular in solar. And um, <laughs> the, way, the way I structure these ideas now is I I, I apologize for them. Just apologize, apologize in advance and get out get out ahead of the trend, right? Yes, I apologize. Yes, in advance. <laughs> so, I'm sorry. I'm recommending this. Yeah. Uh, and in the case of solar, so to talk about solar today is a very different idea. When I was recommending solar stocks four or five years ago, um, you know, I, I literally introduced them by saying, this has been probably one of the worst industries to ever emerge in the history of capitalism. It has done nothing but impoverish investors for decades. And um, so there's no automatic reason why the current moment should be different, except that it was different. 
the economics were changing. The demand structure was changing. Um, demand was ramping up at an exponential rate while, while prices were falling. And so you didn't necessarily want to buy a solar panel producer, but you did want to buy a company like Enphase, which I recommended and has gone up, you know, for over a thousand percent. So um, different moments call for different sort of contrarian views, but it's, it's really not contrarian as much as it is just trying to find the, the opportunity that, um, you know, is mostly ignored. Right. And I guess that kind of brings us, uh, you know, you mentioned these big uh, cycles and I want to just put uh, uh, something of a neologism on the, um, on the menu for our listeners. It was, I think probably about four years ago, correct me if I'm wrong here, but about four years ago when you and your publisher, CEO, Brian Hunt coined the term technocasm, uh, or maybe that was a little more recently, but this, this kind of, I remember this kind of represented because it, I remember, you know, in that first decade, everything, as you said, it was all about, you know, quote unquote, boring opportunities over in, you know, the ag sector and, you know, right. the barbarous relic of being gold and whatnot. And, um, you know, to, to see you developing this, uh, this theory or this, um, you know, identifying this big sort of primary trend with Brian was very interesting because it, it was almost as if the the cycle had come sort of full, um, you know, full turn and you had identified at, you know, maybe a point of sort of maximum pessimism for growth stocks, a, a beginning of, of a very rewarding time for, for your readers. Right. The, the, so the technicasm idea is, is 100% Brian Hunt's he came up with the term and the, and the, and the structure behind the, behind the phenomenon. And it's really uh, simply stated it is both um, economic, it's socioeconomic, it's both sociological and it is economic. So the idea being that folks on the right side of the te of technological innovation and development will prosper those on the wrong side will not, um, both from a, an investment standpoint and from a, a sociological standpoint, from your, from your own lifestyle uh, standpoint. So, um, you know, that, that is a great big theme that persists to this day and, and um, dictates a large number of, of winners and losers. So there are entire industries that are on the wrong side of technicasm and, and are just uh, essentially on, on, on life support. They may look fairly robust and they behave in a, in a, in a robusty way, <laughs> but, uh, but <laughs> another unless, neologism. Yes. Unless they adapt, um, you know, they'll, they'll perish. And then on the other side are, uh, you know, are the innovators and, um, Unlike a lot of tech stock investors, I'm not really, you know, I'm an investor in technology stocks of certain types when the time is right. I'm not a tech stock investor. Um, but a lot of tech stock investors will sort of buy the story, they'll buy, they'll buy the, the innovative, cool idea without paying much attention to the size of the total addressable market, the competition, um, to the likelihood that this new technology itself is uniquely vulnerable to obsolescence. So once you dive into any powerful trend like that one, um, 
there's a lot of digging to do to get to get to really the, the true diamonds, the companies that really have, you know, some as Warren Buffett puts it, a, a, a true competitive moat, um, or at least, you know, a good shot at it. Um, and and are operating in industries that have a very long runway of growth and then have have a very large addressable market. So um, it's pretty easy. It's pretty easy to find things you don't like. <laughs> it's much harder to find ones that you know companies that really have have a, a shot have to find like the next Amazon or the next you know Netflix or whatever. Right, and so uh, I guess this goes to uh, you know you mentioned a few of the things that you look for investable moats or or uh, imminent obsolescence would uh, would be uh, you know a couple of the the kind of um, you know high vis indicators one way or another um maybe are there any other kind of things that you any other processes that you go through when screening from you know for individual uh companies like i'm just interested in the process that takes you from identifying this big sort of primary trend which may carry out for a decade or even longer and then getting to the point where you say okay here is a ticker symbol here is a price that i'm comfortable with Here's what I'm going to pull the trigger at, and you know, here is um, here's my short, medium turn turn term strategy. Okay, well, a couple of questions are, are buried in that question. The the first is, um, you know, or on on podcasts like this or uh, at conferences or whatever, you know, individual investors, all investors want want something like something to hang their hat on. Like, what's a thing that you that you do that I can also do? It took me a very, very, very long time to get to a helpful answer, but I have one. And um, part of it is that if you, if you are aware of, of complexity, you know, and the financial markets are complex, right? There's, you're not solving for just a single variable, you're solving for multiple variables. And, and some of those variables are, are, are sociological, just the, the mood of the market. It's not just raw numbers. There, there's obviously, there's an art aspect to this. So, but if you're aware of a lot of variables and you're aware of complexity, it, it's it's hard to, to pull back and say, okay, well, how do I make it less complex? What's the thing that really matters here? There are there are two things that really matter for any investment. One, are sales rising? <laughs> That's one. Two, are insiders buying or selling? So, I could not know anything about a balance sheet, except I can, I can know zero about a balance sheet. I can know nothing about an income statement except the top line, which is revenue. The very first number you see. Um, and knowing that, and then looking up, where you have to look up the data, you know, are insiders buying or selling, um, I'm gonna have a pretty good idea at the extremes, something that a, a company that's, that's compelling, and I'm on a pretty good idea, a company that's not compelling. So um, there is no, you know, Wall Street focuses on earnings, reported earnings, earnings per share, adjusted earnings, adjusted, adjusted EBITDA, all this garbage. And it's garbage because it's all adjusted. And it's all in the hands of the, of the, of the wizards, you know, called um, C CFOs, chief financial officers, and, and their departments. It's wizardry. It's not accounting. So um, if you... If you like wizards, then you know watch Harry Potter. If you, but if you want to make some money in the market, um, pay attention to, to revenue, sales. So there is no such thing. Does not exist. Never in the history of finance has a, a company 
produced long-term growth and rewards for a shareholder by shrinking its revenues. Sporadically, you can have, you can have trades in anything, you know, but the long-term success stories are success stories of revenue up, revenue up, revenue up. So that's the first one. It may seem um, so obvious that it's kind of uh, moronic, but it's not because many companies, especially um, in firm companies, will report rising earnings sometimes while the revenues are falling because they're squeezing costs or they're, they've paid back debt or whatever, but it's the earnings that matter. And then inside of buying and selling. In, that, that's, that's a soft metric. You know, it's not something you can really super hard rely on, but you can rely on the extremes. If you have fairly heavy inside of buying, that means something. If you're fairly heavy inside of selling, that means something. In the middle, not so much. But again, if you want the best opportunities, look where insiders are buying and where revenues are going up, period. That means yeah, they know something interesting about their market. They know, you know they have an edge. And they're not going to be loading up on their own stock if they think they don't have an edge. Right. Yeah, that's, that's, uh, we had Chris Mayer on this show, a good mutual friend of ours, obviously, and he's uh, very big on, on the behavior and the psychology of the insiders, presuming, of course, that they, you know, they have some, um, you know, finger to the wind with regards to their own particular market. And obviously, there's, uh, you know, it's kind of uh, do what I do, not what I say, um, yeah. with regard, regards yeah, to, their, to what they're putting their own money. <laughs> There are a lot of, I mean, obviously once you, but again, I'm, I'm talking about just two things that any investor can look at to start the process, right? Um, obviously there are many, many um, nuances to this analysis and, and ultimately, you know, earnings matter, profit margins matter, all those things matter. You know, no question about mm-hmm. it. But if I, but if I only look at those two things, I'm, I'm rarely going to go, you know, way wrong. Um, one of the more interesting ones from the short side, I, I have done and still do a lot of uh, short selling, um, is um, if you find situations where insiders are not buying, mm. maybe, they're not, maybe they're not selling, but they're not buying, mm-hmm. and the company is borrowing money to buy back stock, mm. right? <laughs> That's a sell. That company right. <laughs> And it happens yeah. all the time. You know, wow. it's like, okay, so if the stock isn't good enough for them to buy a personal money, they're gonna they're gonna they're gonna, you know, keep a liability on a shareholder and buy stock on their behalf. Stock they themselves won't touch. So that's fascinating. Yeah, and I guess that if you were tracking particular companies and you were looking at um at habits or trends of buying and you saw you know habitual monthly quarterly whatever insiders loading up and then all of a sudden radio silence uh that that would probably be a bit of a red flag uh there as well so to to back up to this idea of of the technochasm and just to kind of bring listeners more more fully into it uh you went out to uh atherton which is as maybe not many people know, the the routinely ranked as the richest zip code in the States. And just to get back to that sociological um, data point that you mentioned before, it's that particular um, zip code is located near some very not well-off uh, zip codes within kind of a nine iron uh, from the you know, $20, yeah. $30 million houses. Uh, do you want to just sort of contextualize that a little bit? Because 
I, I, while I think people kind of intuitively understand like, oh, okay, yes, if you're Elon Musk and you, you know, you have a few billion lying around for Twitter or to invest in Tesla or, you know, start these things up, that's one thing. But but it's a bigger wedge uh, societally uh, as well that I think people, even non-investors would do well to uh, be uh, aware of. Yeah, so uh, uh, not far from Atherton is a town called East Palo Alto and it's very poor. Um, there are a lot of, um, it isn't a classic, East Palo Alto is, well, parts of it, ha, there, there are homeless encampments everywhere, but, um, and there are homeless encampments in East Palo Alto, but, but it is not, that's not what it's about, essentially, it's just a, a poor place, you know, especially alongside places like Atherton. So, um, in the one of the elementary schools inside East Palo Alto, uh, more than half the kids are homeless. So they, they actually go home, home to a trailer or a tent or whatever. And um, not only is it right next door to Atherton, but while we were there filming and talking to people, um, you know, you can look a, a mile away is uh, uh, Facebook headquarters. <laughs> wow. It's right there. Yeah. So. Um, and in fact, I mean, to their credit, the Zuckerbergs are, are uh, building an elementary school in East Palo Alto. Uh, so, you know, there, there's that. But uh, it's just the, the, this incredible uh, juxtaposition of really extreme wealth. The, the wealthiest zip code in the United States next to you know, one of the poorest zip codes in the United States. And... Right. Um, you know, the, the, the wealth that's in Atherton and obviously up and down Silicon Valley is technology wealth. It's tech wealth. They're on the right side of technicasm. And the people on the other side, you know, that's, that's folks who, you know, isn't necessarily made any wrong decisions. It's just that's where they are. You know, they, they clean houses or, you know, they work in, um, in some service industry of, of, some, of some type. Um, maybe they're running a successful you know, gardening operation uh, business, but, but it's, it's not a business that can grow exponentially to the benefit of technology. So right. the message was, was not like, Hey, don't be poor, be rich. <laughs> the, message, the message was to the extent that you have an opportunity, be aware that, you know, technology can, can grow. You know, if you, can grow your your wealth and uh, exponentially, and and the opposite can't. So, yeah, and it does it does seem obviously, and, and probably at no other time in history, uh, quite like the last sort of five, maybe ten years, that that divide is increasing exponentially yeah. as the effects of this kind of yeah being on the right side of tech, techno chasm. Yeah, um, that's, that's the the chasm is widening at an exponential rate. That word exponential is overused, but it's it's uh, mathematically accurate in this case. In, in this case, yeah. And so I guess the one of the questions that a lot of people are thinking about after Q1, and this, this kind of goes back to mapping on uh, shorter uh, performances for not just individual stocks, but certain sectors of the market or grouped together, call them growth stocks. I know those growth and value stocks may be sort of overused and, and particular equities maybe flip between mm -hmm. one and another. Uh, 
Um, but when we're looking at this big macro trend that you've identified, I guess a lot of people, you know, they look at Q1 and they say, goodness, I don't know what, what the Nasdaq's down year to date at the moment, something like 10%. It was obviously during March, during the March lows, you know, more than double that down, something like, and, and then of course you've got individual stocks, Netflix and Facebook that had, you know, just were completely routed on, uh, you know, individual right. days even. Um, I read in a recent article uh, a quote that I thought was very interesting from you, and this has just got to do with the, the various headwinds that are that are um, you know in the face of growth continued growth stocks continued growth at the moment. And that and I'll just read this out to you and get your reaction. It's the truth is that the amount of innovation and wealth creation that's about to take place cannot be stopped. You write uh, not by rising government debt politics, border wars, inflation, or rising interest rates. There's some pretty strong headwinds, but you uh, expect, I guess, the, the, this uh, chasm to keep widening and this trend to keep playing out. Is this, is this a, a temporary pullback in your view then? Well, those are, they're, they're, that comment applies only to the sort of capitalistic phenomenon of, of innovation and wealth creation. It does not apply to stock price trajectory. It does not apply to where the stock market is heading. So um, as you are uh, more a, a student of history than I am, and as you well know, there is often a wide disconnect between um, the pace of innovation and the success, the monetary success that those innovations deliver to their investors. So um, coming into this year, we had a stock market at, at all time highs based upon every single applicable valuation metric that anyone has ever used to measure stock market values. It was the highest valuation of all time based on anything you want to talk about. Um, so you don't hit the most extreme value ever have it come off 20% and go, gee, um, you know, how come these great innovations aren't producing big stock price gains for us? It's because it already happened. You already got it. Um, so, you know, let the pony take a breather. Like, like <laughs> feed it some hay, you know, just hang out and watch it for a bit. Um, <laughs> stocks don't go straight up. And, and you know, we, we saw, um, we didn't just see, we saw the overall market fall 20, mm -hmm. but we saw many individual names fall 50%, 60%, 70%. So that's, um, that's a good start in terms of, of cleansing the air and, and, and creating a foundation for, for a new phase of growth in the stock market uh -huh. as, a, as, a broad, as a broad comment. But even then, some of the, some of the stocks, it's, 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 it's so remarkable. You know, even after surrendering 80% of their value, they're still trading at whatever, 100 times sales. Yeah. You know, something that was unimaginable. That, that, some of these numbers were unimaginable. And let alone that they were already, they were at 1,000 times sales or whatever they were at. And so, so it's just, um, you know, investors need to keep in mind it, that, yeah, you, you don't get paid every single day. You know, you, you're trying to find um, 
the, the best mega trend opportunities, things that I have, you know, powerful trends, big addressable market, long live, and you're trying to buy stocks in those trends as well as you can, you, it's always going to be imperfect. But, and if you do that, you know, you're going to make a lot of money, but maybe not tomorrow, maybe not next week. It reminds me again of, uh, of to bring up a mutual friend, Chris Mayer again, he's one of his more, uh, I think his most recent book, uh, 100 Baggers, Stocks That Have Returned 101 Gains and How to Find Them. Uh, he he goes through, you know, the, the last sort of 50 years of, of these, you know, mega successful stocks that have just made uh, potloads for investors. And it's, it's, as you said, it's not a straight line. Many of these, including, you know, household names like Amazon, like Apple, have been cut in half or worse multiple times along the journey. Um, so, yeah, give the give the pony some hay and uh, <laughs> right. check in again next quarter. <laughs> I used to do, uh, every once in a while in, in speeches, I, I had this, uh, this little gag. I'd say, okay, so who wants to be a, million, a billionaire? You know, here's how you do it. Here's how you become a billionaire. You find a stock that falls 20% every four years. Fall, I mean, it's some number like this. I don't remember exactly, but it's, it's roughly like this. Um, you know, falls 35% every six years. And, um, and every 14 years produces a gain of zero. I mean, for over, it goes 14 year spans or produces a gain of zero. And then, and then I got, so who, who wants to do that? And of course it sounds miserable, right? But the stock is Berkshire Hathaway. Yeah. So Berkshire Hathaway <laughs> spent, the, I the, remember 12, 13, 14 years producing a zero return. It had multiple 20, 30, 40% setbacks during its history. And, um, but, you know, the boy. Yeah, I, feel like those, I, feel like, I feel like those guys did, uh, did a ride out of this whole sort of uh, investing game. And that, that's interesting. It brings us to where I kind of wanted to, to get to talking about old school uh, investing and old school uh, tried and tested ideas. It does seem, um, you, you know, you've been writing a little bit more recently about a, another idea that dovetails with something that we're working on over at uh, Bonner Private Research, and that is our uh, trade of the decade: long energy, generally long, long old school energy, short, uh, short the U.S. dollar. And uh, you know, with all of the kind of geopolitical backdrop, the inflationary backdrop, you know, the the, the Fed being in the headline every every other week, um, this is something that that you've written quite a bit about lately. And this is it strikes me as that it is a little bit of a return to a cycle that is has been unloved during the big run up of uh, of EVs and whatnot, and uh, now people are kind of cycling back to very unsexy old oil what's your what, what, what was the catalyst that, that drove you back right. into the arms of the hydrocarbon <laughs> sector i don't know if, i don't know if, if if bill stole my idea or, or <laughs> if he at the same time uh, i started um i started writing about buying oil stocks in november and yep. to my point earlier in this podcast i I, the lead sentence or paragraph for that first recommendation was, um, you know, I realize most folks don't want to buy an oil stock. I get it. I don't even want to recommend an oil stock. But I have to. Imagine how I feel, yeah. 
<laughs> so I uh, recommended oil spots. Um, those trades obviously have done really, really well. Uh, um, and I'm still in the process of rec recommending additional ones. <clears throat> to the point, is the trade of a decade? Um, I, I don't know. What I know about, there's two or three things about the, the oil market that are, that are uh, fascinating and, and immovable. One is that it takes a very long time to bring new production online. Anywhere from, you know, if you've already got an existing shale operation, you know, in Texas somewhere, and you're just drilling a new platform, okay, you can get that thing running in, you know, less than a year. But talking about, you know, discovery to production is, is 10 years best case, and um, it can be much longer. So uh, it is the, the ultimate uh, inelastic market. You, you can't just produce new oil. Um, if demand is there. So for a decade now, global oil companies have been underinvesting in new production. There's a company called Rystad that tracks it. And I think the, the peak investment was $800 billion in exploration and production or exploration investment uh, globally in 2014. That number fell to 300 billion, 800 to 300. And, um, you know, th that. Anecdotally, we know that's true from comments on dozens of conference calls from, from uh, oil stock CEOs and CFOs. They are afraid to invest large sums in new production. Um, so that's a multi-year trend that, you know, it's coming home to roost now. Right, we're we're our our current global supply is is constricted due to underinvestment for many many years now. At the same time, um, the the EV story, while absolutely authentic and powerful and real, is widely misunderstood. Um, yes, EVs will take a larger share every single year from from uh, combustion vehicles. Um, and yes, you know, solar, wind, et cetera, coupled with energy storage will take a larger share of the power generation market. But, but, and it's a gigantic but, those activities are oil intensive. Yeah, I've got a I've got a quote from you here in a in a very interesting in a in a another column that you had. You said you write uh, renewable energy is not oil free energy. That I kind of I just sort of underlined there, and I think that's a dynamic that a lot of people miss when you know they're talking about um, you know solar, wind, EV. They they fail to incorporate all of the very highly oil intensive processes that are involved in either manufacturing uh, you know, the, the blades for the, the solar panels or, or the mining process or the distribution process or the, or the you know, um, storage. I mean, these are high energy intensive processes and we're not powering them by sunshine and uh, you know, wind at present. So it, it, yeah. it, we that, have to go that, through that to get there. Yeah, there are very few exceptions to that. The other, the other, and probably even a more important point, this is two points. The second one is that um, while the EV's share of the global auto market is going to be growing year by year by year, uh, the pie itself is growing. 
So the number of vehicles of any kind is going to be growing year after year after year. So that means that in, in absolute terms, the number of internal combustion vehicles on, on the road won't peak until at least 10 years from now. Mm-hmm. Obviously, those are estimates, but the estimates run anywhere from 10 years out to 20 years out. It could be, it could be you know, 2040 before internal combustion vehicle crude oil consumption peaks, no matter what EVs do. So, uh, you know, you don't, you don't get there overnight. And I mean, I think even under the most, like the most radical, aggressive assumptions about EV, about EV adoption, uh, you're still looking at, at peak oil, you know, six, seven years out. That's the, that's, I don't even think that's plausible, but, but okay, it's an estimate. But even if that's true, um, yeah. you know, that's just automobiles. Well, that, that's, that certainly bodes well for our, uh, for our trade of the decade, which is <laughs> doing quite well, well early on. Why, but yeah, it's a trade of the decade because to some great extent, the supply, it's not entirely, entirely baked in the cake. I mean, U.S. Uh, oil companies will try to ramp up production. Um, everyone will try, but mm-hmm. it's pretty much baked in the cake. And um, in, in very, very round numbers, um, you know, the, the U.S. Is, is not capable of, of ramping more than a million or two barrels a day over the near term. And, but we're, we're talking about a demand that would, that would exceed that, not in the U.S., but I mean, globally, globally, demand is probably already exceeding supply by a million right. or two million barrels a day. And no one else is growing, growing production. There's some, some addition coming out of OPEC, but, um, you know, I don't know where it's going to come from. And we still aren't back to pre-COVID levels of demand from aviation, from, you know, trucking, from in, in Asia, a lot of the Asian economies are still well below pre-COVID levels of, of, of real consumption. So if you just return to that and then add in the incremental growth, demand could be anywhere from, from three to six million barrels a day above supply. And that's, that's off of a 100 million barrel a day base. So that's about what the world consumes. Um, it could easily go to 105, 106 with supply sitting there at 100, 101. Um, obviously, that situation can't persist forever because <laughs> you can't earn a 5 million barrel that you don't have. So, um, so prices go up. Interesting that you mentioned uh, 2014 as the high watermark for uh, for global investment in exploration, obviously, just happens to be. I'm sure listeners are uh, recognizing the coincidence that that just happens to be the last peak in price uh, of oil. It was 100, and how whatever, it was, 80 bucks or whatever it was right. uh, in 2014. So just to track sentiment, and then you have whatever we've had six, eight years of underinvestment and undercapitalization in that industry that was. Um, is part of that whole uh, part of that whole thesis. What do you make um, of? I, it was, I thought it was because that's when Bitcoin launched. I figured they stopped stopped investing in oil and gas, just bought Bitcoin then. Yeah, well, well you know, it's Bitcoin is a highly oil intensive uh, mining <laughs> operation that needs to be <laughs> that needs to be supported. <laughs> so, um, I'm I'm wondering just there's obviously the the kind of other piece of this puzzle, which is a, a geopolitical, um, a geopolitical piece, but where we have, and you've written also extensively about um, 
oil companies pulling out of Russia uh, at present. It, it's it's not so much <clears throat> a big deal if I think as as uh, your friend Brian Hunt said, a few people in Moscow can't watch Squid Games and Netflix makes their exit. But but it is a big deal when Western you know when the when the Western majors are you know beating a hasty exit and leaving not just decades worth of you know capital intensive work and infrastructure and labor and intellectual property and whatnot behind but also you know billions tens hundreds of billions who knows uh, of of uh, of you know oil that they won't be drilling uh, anytime mm. in the near future and oil that may very well not be available at least not without significant strings attached to either the United States or um, or various countries across the European continent w- who are heavily reliant on uh, gas or oil to keep the lights on and to have their uh, their homes heated. So h- how much do you think that plays into, I mean, obviously a lot's been made of the quote-unquote Putin price hike, you know, and blaming all of the, you know, the inflationary pressures in the US uh, on on uh, you know, big bad Vlad across across the way, but uh, how much of it actually do you think does uh, play in, and how much of it, as you mentioned before, do you think was already baked in the cake, uh, both as far as yeah, under investment and we hadn't even mentioned Russia in the context yeah. of, of the oil trade. <laughs> oh yeah, that <laughs> that's because when when both Bill and I apparently conceived this idea, Russia wasn't yet, uh, uh, you know, the pariah it has become. Um, so Russia definitely matters. It matters a lot to the equation. Uh, I think we, as I wrote, I think the oil market was already poised for a move to $100 a barrel. And I was writing it when it was 60 a barrel. Mm-hmm. It was already poised for that move without any, any, anything happening in Ukraine or Russia. Um, so now, you know, maybe your floor is higher, but the, the issue is, is twofold. One is that, yeah, Russian oil will, will still come to market. Somebody will buy it at some discounted price, but those supply chains need to shift. Um, and, and we've learned a little bit about what that looks like, how messy it can be and how much time it takes for supply, supply chains to shift. Mm -hmm. So. Um, I don't know if China and India, for example, can sop up all the all the Russian oil um, that they, you know, in lieu of buying it from somewhere else. But mm-hmm. when you're talking about Western benchmark prices, meaning Brent crude in London and West Texas Intermediate here, WTI crude, mm-hmm. um, those are the oil prices I'm talking about. Right. And those, those prices are going to go higher because of a supply chain shift and also because of scarcity. So there's something called a Urals blend. That's the, that's Russian oil, mm-hmm. and it used to be that the spread used to be meaning earlier this year the spread between Urals oil and Brent Brent oil was about a buck a barrel, like nothing. And now, now that spread <laughs> is, is minus twenty five to minus thirty dollars a barrel. Wow. That's how much cheaper Russian oil is than world oil. So that tells you right there what's happening on on the ground. You know there is a buyer strike. So that's the first problem. The second problem is more serious. Um, when Western technology departs, a lot of industries struggle. So when Venezuela said, You're, you know, we don't need you anymore, Venezuela's production plummeted. 
It didn't have the, you know, the new technology, didn't have the parts, didn't have this, didn't have that. And Russia is also very reliant on Western technology and Western supplies to maintain both the, the production and the health of their fields. Mm. Human so, capital experts on the ground, all those companies that have since hightailed it out of there are right. yeah, leaving long shadows. Exactly. So, you know, and Russian production was already in decline. I mean, they're, they're mm-hmm. operating on aging fields in a lot of places. And uh, so without, without the means to invest in sustaining and, and, and rejuvenating production, um, you know, it could fall fairly precipitously. Well, and and um, this kind of gets to this idea. I mean, from another angle, but this bifurcation of the global economy. Whether we're talking about, obviously, energy is largely a catalyzing agent here. But even when we talk about uh, you know financial sanctions uh, and so forth, where it almost feels like, and I've seen a few other commentators. Uh, you know, I'm not the first to make this point, but it does seem like. There is this kind of resurgence of Cold War geopolitical bifurcation, and you know where where you've referred to it, something of a similar trend. I think as this trend toward deglobalization, where we have mm-hmm. economies that were once sort of open for business, open to you know lowering trades, lowering tariffs rather. Um, and being more internationally uh, cooperative now sort of retreat back to their corner and and deglobalize essentially. What what do you make of the potential ways that uh, that individuals, let's say in the United States and in the West, are going to see that manifest itself in maybe just their everyday lives? And then we can talk about the markets maybe after yeah. that. Yeah, well, so um, I'll say this first in case Bill tries to steal this idea also. For almost two years, um, right. uh, the new Made in America brand, uh, and I, I also gave a, a little um, acronym, um, NMIC. It was Made in America or Not Made in China. So, and I have been suggesting this is this would become a powerful investment megatrend. I believe that as adamantly today as I did a year and a half ago. And we're seeing it develop and mature and, and fan out across every industry it's about. And, and now with this Russian invasion and this instantaneous, you know, boycott of an entire, you know, superpower, um, that, that, that just reinforces the idea of, of, of how that trade will deglobalize. There's going to be, um, you know, a messy divorce coming. And for, for your old timers in the crowd, it'll, it'll be as bad as like, you know, Richard Burton and, and Liz Taylor, you know, of, of all, uh, Oh, don't say it. Don't say it. <laughs> <laughs> For the younger people in the crowd, let me see, give me somebody, uh, give me somebody, uh, who had a nice divorce recently. I'd, yeah. I, 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 I'm going to be of zero okay. help to you there. Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie. That's as far back as I can Kanye go. And Kim. It was as bad as that. Kanye and Kim. Oh my, wait, have they, are you breaking news to me right now? They have split. Is They're that still married? Oh, well, I have no idea. Kim was with Pete Davidson, you know, from Saturday Night oh, Live. So I don't Okay. I can't keep up with these youngsters, Joel. You know that. Maybe they had a maybe they had a Will and Jada type arrangement where it was not exclusive or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, maybe yeah. that's a that's a, that's a cancelable uh, <laughs> statement. We're going to get booted off the air or slapped in the face. Yeah. Uh, on, online. I don't even know what to say. Anyway, um, 
so the deglobalization is something that will you know, will affect all um, all industries. And and uh, I gave you one uh, perfect example. So uh, Intel, you know, the giant American uh, chip company, mm-hmm. has been has announced a few months ago it was going to begin with an initial investments of forty billion dollars to to build new fabs, new semiconductor foundries <clears throat> in Arizona, here in the U.S. and in Europe. Mm. And investors have been very, very um, nonplussed by this idea. They don't like all this major investment, you know, becoming a manufacturer and blah, blah, blah. And why don't you just do it the way NVIDIA does it? Why don't you just design the chips and outsource it to Taiwan Semiconductor? Mm-hmm. It's like, huh, <clears throat> Taiwan Semiconductor. What is it about that name? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> As a, as a former resident of Taiwan, I can. <clears throat> yeah. So even if, and I do assume that Taiwan will remain independent for quite some time, but even if it does, what Ukraine has showed us is that you can never be too sure. So yes. it takes a long time to design chips into new technology. How enthusiastic are various technology companies going to be about, oh yeah, we're using this chip from NVIDIA that's manufactured in Taiwan. Um, that should be fine, right? Uh, um, maybe, maybe not. So not so shockingly, about two weeks ago, NVIDIA said, huh, you know what? Maybe we're going to contract with Intel to build some of our chips for the first time ever, right? Build them here, yeah. or build them in the US, or build them in Europe. So it isn't that the supply chain itself um, will automatically rupture. It's just now everyone knows about the threat. Everyone knows the risk. Uh, you know, you can't you can't say you know fool me twice. Like no, I think the pressure will be overwhelming on on CEOs, married CEOs, to deglobalize because if they don't. And supply chain breaks down, even even in an innocent way. If some just some whatever, there's a tsunami or something, you know, and it, it disrupts production somewhere, right? All right. Well, you should have known, Mr. CEO, that you, you can't build a business this way anymore. That's not how it works. So I think yeah, the pressure is pretty overwhelming to bring it home, or as I said, not made in China. I think it's going to be coming back to South America, North America, Europe primarily. Yeah, it does kind of. A very big one with 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 legs. Yeah, it does. It does kind of seem like the conversation before and after everybody knew that there was a gun at the wedding. Uh, let let's say there's it's yeah, the kind of right. thing you can't wanted to mention very quickly. And I'll put these uh, links in the show notes for people who uh, who want to follow on with your work and um, and they can go over to our Substack page again at com and have a look for uh, Fry's investment report and The Speculator. And again, we'll have links to both of those in there um, where Eric fleshes out all of the uh, trends, theories, macro analysis, et cetera, that uh, we've spoken about here. And then in Speculator, uh, drills into it uh, a lot more with some more technical trading for, for those of you who are more advanced investors. Uh, but there's plenty of info over there. And uh, Eric, I'm hoping that we get to uh, catch up sometime in the near future. 
uh, now that we're returning to some something like normalcy, maybe we'll uh, we can hang out in uh, in the Russian River sometime soon. Sounds good. Sounds good. <laughs> okay. Thanks, Eric. Great to talk to you, mate. Cheers.